This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Jay Ramaswamy. Jay is the Chief Legal Officer at Andreessen Horowitz, and we recorded this interview at the Money 2020 Conference in Las Vegas. Our discussion covers the regulatory agencies involved with crypto, the balance between privacy and compliance, and how A16Z thinks about responsible regulation. Please enjoy this conversation with Jay Ramaswamy. Today, I'm really excited to have Jay Ramaswamy. Jay is one of the most important lawyers in all of crypto. He is the chief legal officer of A16Z. Jay, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Eric. Jay, before we get started, you have a very impressive background. Why don't you let the audience kind of understand how you went from traditional finance lawyer to the other side of being chief lawyer at A16Z? Let me just mention a couple of disclaimers up front. One, and I hope this is obvious to the audience, nothing I'm giving here is legal advice. I'm just talking generally about the space and giving some high-level impressions. The second issue is that none of this is investment advice. You need to do research on this area. And again, I'm hoping to just provide some context for how the industry is developing. So Jay, why don't you tell us about your background and career? I like to say that a couple of years I got red-pilled into the uh, crypto industry. And I think a lot of people describe it as that, where you just learn about this technology and become interested in a deep way about it. My background actually is in the government and in financial crimes and law enforcement. So I started off my career at the Justice Department where I served a number of roles. I started off as a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, working on white collar fraud, white collar matters. From there, moved to Washington to join the cybercrime section. And the role was sort of twofold. One was focusing on chasing hackers around the globe, which is a really fun job in many ways. But also I got exposed to a lot of the developments in cybercrime that were happening in the government at the time. And one of the biggest developments, I think, was a move from a criminal prosecution model to a little bit more of an interdiction and national security model, really because a lot of the hackers were in places where we weren't going to get our hands on them. So that was interesting because I got to learn a lot of the policy issues that are associated with criminal prosecution and financial crimes. From there, I took a position at the asset forfeiture money laundering section, where I eventually became the chief of that section and focused on criminal prosecution of the Bank Secrecy Act and the sanctions regimes and the Patriot Act. And the idea was that the department really made a concerted effort to move into areas where there were financial institutions that were failing in a pretty massive way on their compliance obligations. And in that realm, I was introduced to some of the new digital technologies, some of the new sort of, at that time, new, but precursors, if you will, to Bitcoin. Platforms like eGold, which you may or may not have come across, Liberty Reserve, which were kind of centralized digital currency models. 
but also ended up being a conduit for illicit finance. But having done those roles for a number of years, an opportunity came up to move into the private sector, to the banking sector, to become the head of AML compliance within the financial crimes program at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. And I had an opportunity to work with Bill Fox, who's one of the sort of major figures in this field. And it was an opportunity that was hard to pass up. From there, spent several years in a fantastic role overseeing the global AML program for Bank of America and Merrill Lynch. From there, moved on to a broader role at Capital One in risk management, became the head of enterprise risk management, got to see the banking business from a broader point of view. But more importantly, Capital One at the time, and I think it's still true now, was at the forefront of how technology intersects with finance. And given my background, that was something that just interested me. And I got to see that business model from a different perch. And here's the sort of transition to crypto. After several years in the financial services sector, I started to realize that innovation was happening, but it was a really tough place to innovate in a regulated financial institution. With that, I became interested in learning more about what was happening in the tech space and eventually got in touch with Katie Hahn, one of the former general partners at Andreessen Horowitz in the crypto fund, who helped found it with Chris Dixon. She introduced me to one of the portfolio companies, Cello, which I ended up working for and becoming the chief risk and compliance officer. And after delving in deeply or as deeply as a non-technical person can delve into Web3 and crypto, it became clear to me that there was something foundational happening here, but it was impossible to learn it from the outside. You kind of needed to jump in feet first and see what was happening. So I took a leap of faith and ended up for a couple of years working as a chief risk and compliance officer with C-Labs, which is the entity that helped launch the Celo protocol, which is now alive and running layer one blockchain. And I think that the move to Andreessen Horace was driven by a couple of things. They were really interested in not just the sort of technical side of these investments, but the public policy surrounding it. Because I think that there's an acknowledgement that the regulatory questions and the public policy questions are the long pole in the tent in crypto. And this is a personal feeling of mine. I won't generalize day 16Z, but I think that you get enough smart engineers in the room and they're going to solve all the technical problems that we're talking about. We've seen it happen time and time again. And the regulatory questions are really the questions that I think are going to be a little bit more difficult and in a sense are going to require a nuanced approach. And A16Z has, I think, one of the most impressive teams of people. You mentioned one of the most important lawyers. I don't actually think so. I think that the team we've assembled is actually incredibly impressive in terms of the varied backgrounds of folks there. And I've always liked to work with people who are smarter than myself and in places where they're just challenging problems. And that was a space that that was. And so that's what attracted me to A16Z. And subsequent to joining, I took on a role as the chief legal officer and also work with the crypto team on some of the policy issues. Interesting. So I'm excited to dive into this. I feel like I get a lot of questions based on my background in TradeFi or just people in general on the regulatory side. People don't ask me about how a layer one blockchain works differently than another. And so let's just set some context. There is an alphabet soup of regulation and crypto is a new asset class. This is trying to find its way through what it fits into and what it doesn't. So there's the SEC, the CFTC, the OCC, there's Treasury, Fed, everyone's got an opinion. Can you give us a framework of how to think about the different regulatory agencies and what they're meant to do? There are three major buckets of regulation that intersect with crypto. The first one, and it was probably the first one that 
holistically intersected with crypto has to do with financial crimes, the illicit use of crypto for money laundering, terrorist financing, other types of illicit financial activity. And those regulators are regulators that have names like FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. And I'm going to be U.S. focused here because I could get into a bigger alphabet soup internationally, but you can think of each of these areas having international analogs. But FinCEN is our primary money laundering regulator, meaning that it comes up with regulations that implement a series of statutes and regulations known as the Bank Secrecy Act that are focused on ensuring that financial institutions are able to provide meaningful information to law enforcement in connection with investigations when there's appropriate process, a subpoena or a search warrant or something of that nature, and they're trying to follow the money in furtherance of a crime. A related area is sanctions. Sanctions are a foreign policy tool of the United States where we effectively embargo countries from our financial system and from the dollar. That actually means that they're essentially embargoed globally because the dollar is such an important tool of international commerce, that they're essentially embargoed from using the dollar in the U.S. and therefore derivatively the global financial system. That's a very powerful tool, but it's a policy decision that's made by generally the executive branch in the form of OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, to designate certain individuals, countries, or entities as weapons proliferators or increasingly cybercrime syndicates and organizations or other types of actors, you know, rogue state actors like North Korea, or more recently Russia and some of the sanctions against their activity in the Ukraine. So that's the large issue around financial crimes. And there's also a strong criminal enforcement mechanism. The Department of Justice, where I used to work, takes a very active role in bringing criminal prosecutions for compliance violations that FinCEN and OFAC would bring, but that go beyond the pale, that have a level of willfulness and intentional disregard for the law. So that's kind of that panoply of regulations. There's a second bucket of regulations that came next, if you will. So the first thing is criminals always use technology first. And so the law enforcement people are the first out of the gate. The second set arose out of the ICO boom from the 2017 timeframe. And those had to do with consumer protection and market integrity. So to the extent that something is a security or falls under the purview of commodities regulators, there are specific structural requirements that need to be put into place to protect consumers and to protect market integrity of the capital markets. Those agencies are the SEC for the Securities and Exchange Commission on the security side and the CFTC or the Commodities Futures Trading Commission on the commodity side. The third set of regulations, which I think we've only seen more recently with the rise of stable coins, really are banking regulations. And they have to do with essentially depository or deposits taking institutions or custodian relationships where you're custodying assets for people. Those regulators tend to be the Fed and the OCC, the Office of Controller Currency. And you've seen that certain crypto custodians like Anchorage have formally applied and given banking charters for custody. Additionally, you've seen a concern, I think, from regulators that things like stable coins, which are a kind of a commercial digital dollar, could have a broader impact on the banking system and on financial stability. And so there's a number of concerns that have arisen there. The presidential working group has and directives have come down. And so those are the three major pots. And overlying all of them is the Treasury Department, which has relationships in each of these pots and the larger Biden administration, which obviously has an interest in financial regulation more broadly. 
when I hear OFAC, I think North Korea or Iran as an American, you know, a sanctioned nation happening. And in crypto, when OFAC came out and sanctioned Tornado Cash, I think that rocked people's worlds a little bit because it was a protocol. And I think that when I was reading the OFAC press release, it said something like 40%, might be getting my numbers wrong, so don't quote me, of Tornado Cash, which is a mixer. Basically, you could put your assets in and to try to protect your privacy, which we'll get to maybe good use cases, but also potentially protecting bad actors, that perhaps North Korea was something like 40% of the volume going through this thing. And instead of just sanctioning North Korea, they sanctioned the whole protocol. And so I think something we've talked about in the past, which would be helpful for the audience, is when you get an OFAC sanction, like who's responsible, and then maybe dive into that specific reaction and then how they felt about it when they saw a protocol getting sanctioned like that. OFAC has a number of tools at its disposal to apply sanctions. And I'm not going to go into them in detail, but I'm going to give you a couple of buckets. As you mentioned, a traditional tool is to sanction an entire country. And so there are countries like Iran and North Korea that are considered by U.S. foreign policymakers outside of the norm in the way they behave of international politics that we're going to sanction them and cut them off completely from the U.S. financial system. And they bring their activities bring heightened risks. And so in the case of North Korea, it's really the concern around weapons proliferation. It's the use of the financial system to fund nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction programs. In the case of Iran, it has to do with potentially nuclear proliferation, also terrorist financing and destabilizing actions that they're taking in various parts of the world. So those are kind of classic country-based sanctions. Another one we don't talk about much anymore is Cuba. Since the 1960s, Cuba has been sanctioned, although that's been, with varying administrations, attempted to be pulled back a little bit. But those are country-level sanctions. And that's to your point, when North Korea is in fact sanctioned. So the Treasury Department couldn't sanction North Korea anymore because they've already been sanctioned. A second set are sectoral sanctions, and that's where the country is considered, in a sense, too important to the global economy to completely cut them off. So you adopt sanctions against the sectors of that country, sectors of that state that are involved in activities that the United States disapproves of and things are destabilizing. So a good example of that are some of the sanctions that have been brought against China and Russia where they're too important to the global economy, it would be incredibly destabilizing to cut them off completely. So you try to do more targeted sectoral sanctions. And so in the case of Russia, for example, there were particular sectors of state-owned companies in the energy sector, in other words, that were put on this list and that American companies and actually American individuals, you and I, no matter where we live in the world, have to abide by. The third is designating individuals and organizations, and that's what's called the SDN list or the Specially Designated Nationals list. And that's where you try to use an even more finer scalpel and go after individuals that are facilitating the types of transactions with these countries and sectors that you don't like. And those can be organizations or they can be individuals. There's some sanctions against cartel members, for example, in the drug trade. So those are the tools that OFAX has in its Bailiwick. And then there are a couple of other finer tools that OFAC and FinCEN that we discussed before can use, which is, for example, designating a financial institution, an institution of primary money laundering concern. And that's not quite an OFAC, that's more of a FinCEN and Treasury Department, but they work hand in hand. And there you essentially see a financial institution, you say, ah, they are massively facilitating money laundering or something else. And so we're going to cut them specifically off from the financial institution. So you put them on a list and then banks can't do transactions with them. So when you look at this and you see something like 
a tornado cache, which is, as we know, a protocol. I'll take a little issue with mixers. In that context, I think technically they're not a mixer. You actually maintain private ownership of the assets, but it uses other ways of obfuscating that ownership. So we can colloquially call it a mixer, but technically it's not a mixer in the way that some of these others are. And you see massive amounts of money flowing to a designated country or a sanctioned country through there. And you have to understand that from the government's perspective, they will do something to redress that because the risk of North Korea, who have become incredibly adept at monetizing cybercrime for hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in a way that can meaningfully advance their nuclear program. If you're a national security policymaker in the US, you're going to look at that and you're going to say something has to be done there. And so I think what you saw with the designation of Tornado Cash was the normal reaction that the government's going to have to a heightened risk from a national security perspective. That's what was not new. What was also not new in some senses was the government has signaled many times that if you're a privacy-preserving protocol, that there are heightened concerns about money laundering, about sanctions evasions. And it has gone after in the past, and in fact, sanctioned Blender.io, which was, I think, truly a mixer with sort of individuals who held private keys, who mixed assets and obfuscated their origins. What happened with Tornado Cash is I think that the architecture of this technology, because it's decentralized in a more crypto-native way, made it more difficult to comprehend that there's a difference between Blender.io, which was a mixer where you could identify either individuals or groups of inchoate individuals who were doing this activity, and Tornado Cash, where it's a smart contract that's doing it, and it's essentially programmatic. And I think that that distinction, this is my read, and I can't read officials in OFAC positions, minds completely. There may not have been a full appreciation of that distinction, and that it's one thing sanctioning groups of people and organizations, even if they're inchoate and unknown, that control a technology versus sanctioning the technology itself, which is effectively what they did here. That's what caused a lot of angst amongst crypto folks and people knowledgeable in this area is, one, that was a bridge that hadn't been crossed before. We typically take legal action against conduct. And this is true across the regulatory spectrum, not against technologies per se. That's not 100% true. There's been an ongoing encryption debate, I think, around encryption. So it's a little bit nuanced, but nonetheless, that's typically what we've done. And I think you saw in the walking back, if you will, and that's my characterization and not OFAX, of some of the implications in their FAQs where they said, look, we're not going after all privacy-preserving technologies. Our intention is not to go after mixers as well. But they were trying to address conduct in a construct where that's difficult to do. I think it's opened up a lot of questions. One, do the statutes and regulations govern or allow the government to move after technology in the way they've suggested? Is it just a communications issue where they just need to clarify what exactly they're going after? Is it a group of inchoate people who they have information, whether classified or not, that are doing bad things? Or is it really the technology itself? And I think where we stand today is it's an open question. I tend to think that they were going after groups of individuals that were using a technology, not the technology itself. But I think it's an open question. I don't think it was clearly articulated by the government. Just listening to how OFAC acted, it made me wonder, there are times where regulators do stuff specifically to send a message with either a high-profile case. 
but OFAC being criminal, I can imagine they're kind of like, we need to move because there's a risk here. Is it an organization historically that uses a shock and awe, like we're going to stop stuff? Or is it like we grabbed the sledgehammer, we meant to grab the scalpel type organization? Like how would you characterize when they send a message or they take action, what they're trying to do? One clarification, I think it's really important for listeners to understand this. And some of your listeners may already recognize this. OFAC actually doesn't bring criminal sanctions. OFAC is an administrative agency, and what they levy against you are fines, essentially. That's what they're authorized to do and other potential regulatory actions. They have huge consequence. I don't mean to say that this is a small thing in the sense that there's huge reputational risk, and you can, as a result of that, be cut off from the financial system. So there are huge implications from it. But just a small nuance, criminal actions can only be brought by the Department of Justice And oftentimes they'll act in concert with OFAC when violations are so egregious because they're willful or they're sort of intentional conduct kind of involved. And so I just wanted to bring that. But when we're talking about OFAC, honestly, OFAC is a very thoughtful organization, a very thoughtful agency. They put a lot of time and a lot of thinking into what they do. There's no question that they, like all regulators and sometimes law enforcement agencies, are focused on general deterrence, not specific deterrence. So specific deterrence is where I penalize a specific person so they won't do it again. General deterrence is what you're talking about, signaling, saying, hey, you don't want to be like this person. And all regulators, all law enforcement agencies look at general deterrence. So I think part of what OFAC does is general deterrence, but they're also very, very cognizant of the fact that when you're dealing with financial sanctions, there are all sorts of unintended consequences. There are innocent parties that are affected. And it's why you see that they issue, even after something like Tornado Crash, FAQs to give market participants some sense of, if I'm an innocent party, how do I go about reclaiming my assets? So I do think of them as thoughtful, but yes, of course, they're sending a message that this is an area of heightened risk and you need to be thoughtful about how you approach things in this space. But I think they're being thoughtful on their end too, saying, look, we understand that there are legitimate reasons for privacy-preserving technologies and we're not saying that privacy-preserving technologies are beyond the pale. What we are saying is that you also, industry side, need to take reasonable approaches in creating technologies that foster these values. Yeah, I think this is where it gets hard for people that... To your point, we hadn't had a history of going after technology. It was the conduct, which I really like that distinction because an example was used because I think that when something bad happens, even today, Merrick Garland came out and talked about the DOJ and I'm like, oh man, they use Bitcoin to pay for this. Every time there's a headline, crypto is used and that definitely gives people a lot of pause in traditional finance. But then I think about the other examples of someone was talking about how if there was women in Iran that were protesting and you wanted to support them, you might not want to send it to a public address. You might want to use privacy on both sides of a transaction. And as a sanctioned country and how hard it would be to try to help a cause that you were passionate about, that you didn't want, and you have certain rights to privacy. And this balance that you read the headlines when bad things happen. And I think that's why this technology is so fascinating to me is that it is so used by malicious actors. I'm not going to deny that bad things don't happen, but then what gets lost is that people do have a right to privacy and that you can't overstep. And that if you want to keep that, you have a right to that. So how do you think regulators are trying to kind of walk that line and what matters more? It's just a balance. I think that one thing that would surprise a lot of people is that the government is filled with people who are American citizens too, and they actually want privacy to be protected. I remember I was giving a talk at one of the think tanks in D.C., and I raised the issue of how 
in crypto, and we'll get into this in a second, one of the good and bad things is that your transaction history is transparent on the blockchain. Good, as we'll get into in a moment, because law enforcement, OFAC, can track and trace and seize these assets and disrupt criminal enterprises in a sense, far more effectively than they can in the traditional siloed financial system where information is siloed. On the other hand, if you're an individual, it also means that the second you send one Satoshi to an individual, they know who you are and they can now track your entire history. That can raise physical concerns of physical security, cybersecurity and phishing problems, all sorts of issues. And so I raised this point and at the end of the session, an IRS agent came up to me and said, I'm glad you said that. So I just want to convey to people that the government's not filled with people who just think that privacy is nonsense. There are people who understand this is a really important issue and that's a value we want to preserve. But at the heart of all of these statutes is a balance. And the balance that we've historically struck is we're going to keep information private with respect to prying third-party eyes. But when government has a valid interest and in the case of criminal cases, has a subpoena or has a search warrant or something else, that's going to pierce that privacy. And so we have something in the financial system known as the Right to Financial Privacy Act, but we also have exceptions that allow for disclosure of valid information to law enforcement. The other thing is, and I'm moving a little bit from OFAC into the BSA, but they overlap a bit. I don't think many people know that, in fact, banks under penalty of criminal prosecution and prosecutors have prosecuted bankers for this, can't willy-nilly disclose things like a SAR was filed or information that's collected under the Bank Secrecy Act for law enforcement purposes can't be disclosed and people can be and have been prosecuted for disclosing it. So that's the kind of construct that we've had over time. I think the game changer here is the transparent nature of the blockchain. That's actually fundamentally different. When you have siloed information in private ledgers, the whole purpose of these statutes, whether it was blocking actions that are required of banks by OFAC or Bank Secrecy Act filings like suspicious activity reports required by FinCEN. All of that emerges from the fact that the old world that we're coming from was a default private world. Things were kept in paper. They were kept on siloed systems. And if law enforcement wanted to get access to it, they had to have some sort of compelled disclosure. And that's really the entire purpose of all of these regimes is to overcome the nature of private ledgering, which really hasn't changed despite the advent of computers, hasn't really changed since the Medici's. I invented double entry bookkeeping many centuries ago. You now introduce a new technology that's based and premised on a shared public ledger, which solves a number of enormous problems that arise from private ledgers in the traditional financial world. And all of a sudden, we move from a default private world to a default public world. And all those things that are intended to pierce privacy, when you put them in conjunction with a public blockchain can actually cause enormous problems. If we aren't careful about how we handle things like identity, your transaction history is already public on the blockchain. If your identity then gets released, you're literally naked to the public. And that is not a system that anybody would want. It is a system that I think you'll find that some jurisdictions like China and other authoritarian countries actually would like. It's a method of social control, but it's not one that is inherent in the way we think of it as consistent with U.S. constitutional values and private values. So I think in this new world, these privacy-preserving technologies are super important because what they end up doing is just returning us to baseline of what we had before. And now the question becomes when you replace privacy, which was dependent on kind of like human control, so I'm going to collect your information, but I'll keep it secure, to cryptographic controls 
you need to start thinking about, are there techniques that would allow us to maintain privacy like Tornado Cash tried to do, but have the ability under certain circumstances for selective disclosure where there's a subpoena or a search warrant or where you want to prove your innocence and get your assets released from an OFAC order. And those kinds of technologies exist and more development needs to happen there. And people throw these terms around, so I'm just going to throw it around too. But things like zero knowledge proofs have the ability to square this circle technologically between privacy and the needs of compliance and disclosure and national security purposes. And I think more research, more development just needs to happen in that place. And candidly, regulators need to put some skin in the game so that they're encouraging the development of these tools, because I do think they hold promise. One thing when we're talking about the headlines of the uses of the technology in a malicious way and the old form, and you start off with this, and I think it's true that people talked about when automobiles came out, the first people to use them were bank robbers and people running liquor or something, because they're willing to try it because it's worth the gain. They're kind of early adopters in technology. But I think a lot about money laundering and traditional banks. I think just because of how archaic the system is and under the opposite side of this, that a private first nature, which I'm for, I want my privacy. How do you think about money laundering in traditional finance versus crypto? We all know how you can stop money laundering just as we know how you could stop cybercrime, which is you create completely air gap systems. So I can create a system where there's no money laundering. It wouldn't be a very useful system. <laughs> You basically shut down commerce. You make it very difficult to transact. And that's not the system we have. And there's a recognition that money laundering is about risk management. And if you're in a compliance role at a bank, it's drilled into your head that this is risk management. We're not going to reduce the risk to zero, but it's got to be reduced to an acceptable level. And that's why globally all regimes around money laundering are risk-based approaches. And I do want to draw one distinction, which is money laundering versus OFAC. OFAC is, in fact, a strict liability regime, meaning OFAC can fine you and can designate you based on even a single transaction going through. And that's an intentional kind of thing. But when you talk about money laundering and the Bank Secrecy Act and suspicious activity reports, that's a risk-based approach. So I think it's unrealistic to think that any system that works well for commerce is going to eliminate money laundering. So let's start from that base level. We also have to admit that the kinds of markets that have deep capital markets like we do, deep economic relationships are attractive for money launderers because the entire purpose of money laundering is to hide illegitimate conduct to make it look like legitimate conduct. And the more legitimate transactions you have, you can kind of hide in plain sight. I don't want to be too hard on anyone, either the regulators, or the banks. It's a really hard thing to do to detect money laundering, but we've come to a place where there's an acceptance that certain levels are manageable. And the question is, as you transition to the crypto space, are there tools that are acceptable to control the money laundering risk? I don't think you can analogize one-to-one. -one. There are different risks that exist in the traditional financial system and different risks that exist in the crypto system because of their distinct attributes. And the question is, are there tools that can be used? And I think that after a decade of experience, and you know, law enforcement has been evolved this longer, and you'll find that law enforcement folks actually get this and they understand this well. They found, and we've found that, in fact, the tools that we've developed around cyber forensics because of cybercrime, chain analytics because of blockchain transparency, and the kind of heuristics that are used to determine whether it's bad money flows or not, are increasingly proving effective. They don't eliminate the risk, but they're proving effective in the blockchain space to control and manage illicit finance risk. 
And as the knowledge of how to do this in financial institutions and in the government increases, I think that there's ways forward that make this a very manageable problem in the same way that it's manageable in the traditional financial system, balancing it off against the other values we care about of financial inclusion, of privacy, and other things. And that balance is doable. The other thing that should be recognized here is that the government has actually proved incredibly successful over the past several years of using tools like asset forfeiture to claw back crypto gains because this is going to be very wonky for your audience. But when I prosecute somebody criminally, I have to know who you are. When I use a tool like asset forfeiture, I just have to know that the proceeds of the crime are connected to a crime. And the blockchain is perfect for that, which is why you've actually seen that the government has been incredibly successful in seizing assets that North Korea has used, that terrorist organizations have used, and some of the largest asset forfeiture cases have come in this space. And I think I saw Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general, this was several months ago, say that there's been billions of dollars in forfeitures that have taken place. And so we have effective tools. They're not perfect and more can be done. But you know, there's a lot of back and forth between traditional finance people and crypto folks as to where's more money laundering. You know, Chainalysis produced a report saying it's around 1%. Some people have been skeptical of that number. It's estimated to be 2.5% of global GDP as opposed to 1% in crypto. I don't know which of those numbers are right, but what I think you can see from that is that they're roughly the same. Like even if it wasn't 1%, even if it's closer to 2.5%, It just means that there's more of a parity than people think of between the types of illicit finance that can take place in traditional finance and the types that can take place in crypto. And there are tools to mitigate that risk. And I think that's super important to understand. We're not technologists in that way, so I'm not going to ask this in a technology way. But if I just play it back to you, it sounds like if you are going to develop technology in this new area with cryptography, that it seems like from the law enforcement, we'll just stay with that for now, the law enforcement needs a way in case something bad's happening to get it and stop bad actions. In my head, for some reason, I think like the back door to the iPhone or like the law enforcement in the United States is going to want that. Do you envision a world where someone just releases a truly decentralized smart contract? The part that I struggle with is how law enforcement could square. And maybe there's a technical solution like we talked about so we can punt to the technologists. But if the FBI or OFAC says or Finn says, like, hey, we need to stop X, but there's no one to call, what happens? If we were to go to a completely atomized peer-to-peer world, there'd be some hard questions that need to be asked. But I think that we need to recognize that we're not in that world, and that world is even around the corner. So the debates we're talking about are actually very similar to the debates that exist around encryption in the 90s and the architecture of the internet. And I think we should try to analogize as much as possible to things we know about. And what I would say is, When it comes to the creation of these technologies, what crypto and Web3 represent, and we've talked about this a little bit before, is a protocol layer on the internet that brings value transmission or value ledgering, if you will, settlement, in addition to the transmission of information, which the traditional internet did. A lot of the same issues that arose in that sphere around encryption and other concerns exist here, but the way we've generally solved it is by making a pretty severe distinction between protocols and code and applications that are built on code. It's the way that FinCEN's guidance from 2019 thinks about things, or are you a software provider or are you a money service business? 
And I think that that's a really important distinction that needs to be hewed to because we do have institutions in this new world that have AML and KYC obligations. There will be new intermediaries that arise that have obligations. There are techniques and tools to make sure that peer-to-peer transactions and the sort of intermediated financial world, when they connect, can be mediated and can be sort of investigated. And so I think we're in a place right now where law enforcement does have people to call. You know, when you look at the statistics around illicit finance, I think Chainalysis did a report in 2020 or 2021 where they showed that something like 92% of transactions that happen in crypto have on one end of the transaction or another an intermediary that has BSA obligations. And because you can trace the provenance of the funds, you can, with detective work, get back to a place that actually has KYC information. And that's why these transaction tracing tools have been incredibly effective, is because of that fact, the blockchain transparency, and then the fact that there are intermediaries. And those points tend to be where fiat and crypto exchange. There's no way to get around regulatory obligations if you're there. And the weak points have to do with jurisdictions that have weak AML regimes, which organizations like the FATF and even U.S. Treasury are pushing to adopt stronger regimes, but that's a weak point, and institutions that just choose to not comply with their obligations. And so I think the low-hanging fruit from a law enforcement perspective is to double down on intermediary regulation as we know it, stick with things that are happening on the application layer, as opposed to trying to impose things at the protocol layer where it really can't be successful because this is open source software that can be built anywhere. If you try to impose something at the protocol layer in the US, somebody can literally copy that code and throw it over the transom somewhere else, right? And so it's very difficult to do that, but we do have constructs that we know work well in the current atmosphere that allow us to control for this risk well. So let's switch gears from law enforcement to disclosure. I think something people don't really appreciate with the CFTC and the SEC is it's not what you can buy or what you should buy. It's that if you're going to buy something specifically with the SEC and there's going to be a retail investor involved, that certain disclosures have to be made about what you're buying. It could be the worst idea ever, but as long as you've told them this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it, it's really a disclosure regime. And I think because there's been so much enforcement action against crypto, I'm not going to speak on behalf of the industry, but when you do regulation by enforcement, people start to think of the SEC as law enforcement. So let's start moving to the role of the SEC. And I think a good place to start, and then we can get to the CFTC differences, is this Howey test. I'm from investing, so I know what the Howey test is, but maybe for people who now hear about it all the time in Orange Groves, can you explain what the Howey test is? The Howey test is a test that courts came up with, Supreme Court specifically came up many decades ago, to characterize certain types of investments as securities, which has a very specific definition under U.S. law. So the disclosure obligations that you mentioned apply in U.S. law to securities. And one type of security, if it doesn't fall into other buckets, is what's called an investment contract. And that case, the Howey case that you mentioned, was really about investment contracts, a specific type of security. And the basic idea is that if somebody is relying on the efforts of another, so insiders in a company, if you will, and buying an investment in that entity, in that organization, that there are disclosure obligations that that organization has to the public markets, to the markets in general, because there's effectively asymmetries of information. That if you're running a company 
And in the Cowie case, it was people who were running an orange grove and there were investment interests in that orange grove. You may have information that the broader market doesn't know that allows you to value these securities differently than others. And therefore, as a result, there could be some unfairness in how the price is reflected in the public markets based on what you know versus what I know as an outsider. And so the basic idea, I'm not going to get into sort of all the prongs of the Howey test, but the basic idea was if this is the type of instrument where you're relying on And the language in the Supreme Court case was exclusively on the efforts of others in anticipation of making a profit. Those are kind of two. So managerial efforts of others, anticipation of making a profit, that the thing was a security or is a security. Importantly, it's not about just an expectation of profit because one can trade in oranges or in gas or in others things that you think you're going to make a profit because you're trading on the markets, but it's the market movements that you're assessing, not information that insiders may have. And that's the key distinction that distinguishes a security, if you will, from other types of investments. Essentially, the whole question in this area is which of the assets, crypto assets, digital assets, would be considered securities and therefore subject to SEC jurisdiction versus not securities and outside of SEC jurisdiction. And several years ago, the SEC put some thought into this and came up with a series of factors that could determine how you distinguish securities from non-securities. And it focused on concepts of decentralization so that if a network, one of these crypto networks, was sufficiently decentralized that essentially there wasn't managerial efforts of others that you were relying on, but it was kind of like a marketplace that you could imagine that some of these crypto assets wouldn't be securities. And that, of course, invited a lot of questions around line drawing exercises. And the responsible players in the industry sort of took that and tried to draw these lines in various ways in the projects that they've created. And I think the open question now with the SEC is really, to what extent does that analysis that the industry has really relied on for the past several years, do they consider that to still be the frameworks that we should all be thinking about? And if it's not that framework, then what is the right framework? And that's why you've seen a lot of legislation and activities around trying to distinguish between securities and non-securities. The important thing is that if something is not regulated by the SEC as a security, There are potentially other regulatory regimes that can be regulated by. There are money service business regulations, and that's typically the way crypto companies have been regulated through the MSB process and by FinCEN and the regulators for money service businesses. But it's also the case that something's not a security is typically considered a commodity under the jurisdiction of other statutes. The issue is that the regulation around commodities is very different than the regulations around securities in that the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission doesn't have jurisdiction to regulate the spot markets. In other words, you can go buy oil or frozen concentrated orange juice or pork bellies or something else without a sort of disclosure regime, because the idea is that these are general markets. Where the CFTC tends to get involved is in derivatives and futures markets over things that are considered commodities. But there are lots of things that don't fall into things. You know, works of art are traded and they have value, but they're not regulated by the CFTC, at least under current constructs. 
Now, if you were to create a derivative or a future, or if you were to create an investment contract to produce a work of art, that could potentially be a security or in the case of a derivative, something regulated by the CFTC. But those are the line drawing exercises. And the problem with digital assets, especially programmable digital assets, is you can't really characterize them as a single thing. They may have many different uses. Something like an NFT might look more like a work of art than a security, or if it's structured in a certain way, could potentially be a security, or another way, a derivative or something else. And so I think these line drawing exercises are really important. And what you're seeing in Congress with an attempt to kind of characterize and delineate the lines here is that it really isn't clear where those lines are. I know that some people have said it's really clear, but you can talk to 100 lawyers and you'll get different answers as to what it is. I think a fair perspective is to say it's not as clear as people think it is. And especially when you're taking rules of law that I think things like litigation work when there's not been a step change in a technology, when there's incremental change. Common law is very good at incrementally changing the rules. But when you have a technology that's actually a pretty big change, a step change, as I say, Sometimes you need legislation to actually address that issue. And I think that's what we're having where people are saying, okay, this is a new type of asset. Europe is following this way where they've created MICA to address this new class of assets. And I think that's what Congress is kind of struggling with now is, can we draw lines here to say which of these assets would fall within a securities regulation framework, which of these assets would fall within a commodities regulation framework or some other framework? So one note I just want to go back to when you said that, there was guidance. I know of like the Hinman speech. That's what I generally refer to. But it wasn't just the Hinman speech. There was the Dow report, for example, that produced a multi-factor test. It wasn't a very easy document to get through, but it was guidance. It gave you factors that you could consider in thinking about these different types of things. I think that it's fair to say that since that era, there hasn't been a lot of guidance coming. And you can take one of two approaches to that. You can say, look, it's clear enough. Or you can say, okay, maybe it's not clear. And enforcement is one way of trying to achieve clarity. But the problem with it is it doesn't give actors forewarned knowledge of what they can and can't do. And I'm not talking about bad actors. Let's all admit that there are bad actors in this space. And I don't think you would get anybody, certainly not of responsible players in the industry, who would say these agencies shouldn't be going after fraud. That's where they can have the biggest impact is to go after fraud. And everybody would agree to that. But it's really in these areas where the law may not be particularly clear that enforcement doesn't send the right types of information to the market, except for after the fact. And so if you're sitting in role of a legal or a compliance person, you're trying to kind of sort through the tea leaves, you're left with sorting through the tea leaves as opposed to having a little bit clearer guidance. When I interviewed SEC Commissioner Purse, I thought she did a great job of talking about like how to do smart regulation. But I think about something like where the SEC acted by enforcement with BlockFi and this might get a little wonky, but I think it's worth noting is that basically what they said is like some of the ways you've been explaining. So it's a centralized actor that can issue interest bearing accounts. These might be securities and how you disclose this, as well as how you mixed assets from a custodial account where your assets are just held versus an interest bearing where your assets are at risk. It was a very smart thing to do, in my opinion, separating money held in custody versus money held in bearing interest is smart. Had the SEC came out and issued guidance, Celsius and some of the other actors never would have gotten as far down a path because they all would have been act to move. Instead, it was a big, huge settlement with BlockFi. Everyone's then like, okay, I guess we have to go in this direction. Whereas if they had made the rule, 
wasn't a bad intent, but I just wondered why that couldn't have been through some sort of issue of like, let's discuss guidance on if you're going to take money, separate the money being invested from the money being held. That to me is my issue with enforcement. I think enforcement can make a lot of sense at times and it sends a big message to people like, hey, look at this. But without guidance, then people are naturally going to start pushing the rules and going to see how far they can do something until someone gets caught. And it just seems like that's not the way to prevent or to build an asset class. I tend to agree. I mean, I think that transparency on the government side is super important. I think that there should be settled rules. There should be ways of applying those rules. And the best way to do that when there's been a step change in technology, and we see this happen all the time, is through rulemaking or through legislation, where you have truly egregious conduct that violates settled law. I think enforcement is fair. And I was responsible for doing a lot of that. And you make those judgment calls from an enforcement perspective. I was dealing more with the criminal law than civil and regulatory enforcement, but the principles are the same. You try to make the distinction where something appears to be settled and clear. And in some senses on the criminal side, we had more restrictions because there's issues of fair notice if you're going to put somebody in jail. <laughs> and so, you know, we were very sensitive to trying to push the envelope in an enforcement context too far. I think that's really the issue is... I think there are many people who just feel that applying the rules of the road as they exist today is not as clear as some people, including the chair, have suggested. I think when you try to do it, it becomes a difficult thing. And so I think that's kind of where we are is, are we going to be able to come up with some kind of a legal construct where we can get a little bit more clarity or not? And I think that's kind of where we are. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of interesting movements in Congress to try to do this. I think that there's the Stabenow-Bozeman bill that's out there right now. There are other types of legislation around stable coins that are out there. And I think they're all trying to grapple with the same problem, which is what kind of frameworks make sense to give the industry certainty? Because the responsible players want regulation. There's a meme out there that this is the Wild West. Nobody wants regulation. And there, look, there's a multiplicity of voices. So I'm not going to claim that those are unanimous voice. But I think People who want to see this place succeed understand that there needs to be regulation, but there have to be principles that make sense. I drew one distinction before between protocols and applications in the financial crimes perspective, and that's kind of embodied in the way we think about financial crimes. But the same thing kind of applies in other forms of regulation as well. But what are those first principles we want to depart from? And then how do we implement them? And I think we're kind of in that place now. So yes, we can muddle through the system we have today, but a clearer path forward would, I think, be helpful to a lot of players in the industry. It's timely where Sam Bankman-Fried from FDX just released you know, on Twitter his views as the CFTC starts talking about maybe some guidance on how to handle crypto and DeFi and all these different things. And it was interesting because on crypto Twitter, which is not the unifying voice, but the very loud, it was a strong pushback against it because I think that there's one view of crypto that this is outside of the mainstream system, that they are global citizens. But I think that what, and I'm not defending or picking a side on it, but Sam was trying to say, how do I get a square peg in a round hole? But it looked as if he was acting, you know, in FTX interest. Like this is furthering your interest, not thinking about DeFi. And he definitely responded to some of the critique. But I'm curious on your take of how, when people try to kind of move this process forward, kind of seems like damned if they do, damned if they don't. What was your take on the SPF piece? I don't want to weigh in too much into controversy on that. What I can say is that, again, it gets back to first principles. And I think that from the perspective of 
what's going to move this space forward, it's important to preserve things that are truly novel about this technology. And I do think that things like the peer-to-peer and open source nature of this technology that underlies DeFi is a really important thing to preserve because that's the novel thing about this. It sort of reminds me of when you'd hear some folks say that I'm for blockchain, but against crypto. And it actually evidences a misunderstanding because blockchain technology has actually been around for a long time. I think Microsoft may have had the first patent in the 80s. It's just a database, (laughs) right? The novel thing about these systems is that you can create a distributed database with a common ledger that has an incentivization mechanism in it that incentivizes users to use it to kind of overcome network cold start problems. And that incentivizes users to, in a sense, provide resources to the network because they get paid in these crypto. That's the new thing. It's a database that's maintained by a distributed community on the computer science side. And when you import that into finance, it's DeFi. That's a really novel thing that opens up capital markets in a new way. Of course, you then need to think about how those capital markets are going to be regulated if they are capital markets, and I think that's the open question, which of these digital assets are considered securities, commodities, whatever else. But we want to preserve that. That's novel. That's new. So any regulation that comes down the pike really does need to preserve that principle. And we can think of practical ways of doing it. But that's where, you know, as you think about principles, protocol versus application layer is an important principle. I think decentralization and the ability to maintain what's special about some of these peer-to-peer transactions and reducing the power of intermediaries is really important when you think about the inefficiencies that are in our system. And we don't want to just use this technology to freeze the inefficiencies that are in our system today. They should be trying to overcome it. And I think things like DeFi are a way forward. They promise, and these are kind of new technologies, but they promise a way forward and would be terrible to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So a topic that I was super fascinated in, maybe with my background of working at a place that had a very large money market business with stable coins. And I was obsessed with those early as like, they should do this. If Fidelity's running money market funds, why would the money market industry approach stable coins? Because it seemed like such a powerful area. And it's interesting to rewind to the financial crisis and shadow banking and all the stuff that happened. And now stable coins get labeled as like kind of that cycle of like drapers, like they don't pay attention to you, laugh at you. Now suddenly you're a problem. So on your third thesis of that, this is one area of destabilization. What's your take on stable coins, their use cases, and how regulators might think about them? When I said destabilization, if I said that, I should have said potential source of destabilization. I think for the most part, most regulators recognize that to the extent that it's a risk, it's a future risk. And in a weird way, I think what brought this to everybody's attention actually goes back several summers ago when the Libra project was announced. You had the possibility of a company at scale being able to introduce a unit of account, a medium of exchange, you know, the things that characterize money, where rather than being a kind of startup project that would take time to develop organically, could in a sense spring full-born kind of like Athena from the head of Zeus. And I think that that was an eye-opener for people. Most of the projects that exist have tended to develop more organically, develop users, et cetera. The thing that I think that policymakers should really think about in this area is slightly different than the concerns now. I actually don't think that even if countries introduce CBDCs, including 
the US, that it would displace stable coins. The reality is that even today, when you think about the traditional financial system, there's central bank money, there's commercially created money, there's direct central bank liabilities, there's payment systems, they all kind of work together. And I think that the different stable coins essentially can coexist with any kind of structure that exists or that comes up in the future. I think that one of the things that the private sector does a lot better than the public sector is the last mile issue. So how do you get this in the hands of consumers as opposed to other institutions, et cetera? So number one, I think that it is important to recognize that, that stable coins in one way, shape or form are, are here to stay. And the reason for that is as the internet becomes the dominant form of commerce, it already is huge, but we can anticipate it's going to become more massive, that a stable form of digital native payment is really important. One of the things that the internet didn't have originally was any payment. You can go back in the sands of times and read articles about how hard it was to buy a pizza, even though the internet existed. It took a while for that infrastructure to be built where the sort of financial world and the digital world could coexist. And we have those rails that have been built, but they're inefficient in a lot of ways. And this, because settlement and information are married at the protocol level, the efficiencies to be gained here are enormous. From a policymaker's perspective, there are two issues. And these are the two issues I think regulators and policymakers are concerned about. Does the rise of stable coins undermine the dominance of the dollar, which is not just an economic issue, it's also the basis for our sanctions regime. And so when policymakers worry about erosion and the dominance of the dollar, of course they're worried about U.S. economic power. They're also worried about U.S. foreign policy power because if the dollar is less prevalent, the tools like sanctions become less powerful if there's a system. And that's also why adversaries are interested in creating alternative systems. But I think that to address that risk, we should actually be encouraging the creation of dollar-based stable coins because it will, in fact, expand the scope of dollar transactions on the internet. And I would be actually worried about destroying innovation in this area because what you actually want is an internet. If you're a U.S.-centered policymaker, and I admit there are going to be lots of different perspectives internationally, but if you're a U.S.-based policymaker, you want an internet as it grows and becomes bigger to be dominated by U.S. dollar transactions. And the best way to do that is to have U.S. dollar denominated stable coins. That's what I would want people to focus on is to the extent we want that, think about how you encourage this ecosystem. The second thing I think is to recognize that you can put in place different types of requirements without necessarily turning every stablecoin issuer into a bank. I think there's some sort of move to make all stablecoin issuer banks so that stablecoins are effectively digital representations of bank deposits. But there are other mechanisms that can be used to guarantee the safety and soundness of institutions. And I think from a competitive perspective, it would be better to let that ecosystem grow out in the same way that things like Venmo and PayPal that seemed kind of crazy several years ago now are a dominant way that people transpire. And I think consumers want that frictionless and that ease of use. And that should be encouraged if you want this ecosystem to grow and you want the internet to be effectively a dollar-denominated means of commerce. That's what I would be focusing on. And of course, the stability issues are absolutely important, but they arise around things like quality of collateral, what's backing these 
what are the resolution mechanisms. And I think that there are ways of doing that. And there's some bills pending that would address some of these issues. And those are all important issues. But I think it's important to recognize that however you fall out in that, we have a huge stake in ensuring that stablecoins actually succeed. Yeah, I mean, I think about like Rule 287 and money market funds. You don't have to be a bank to like guarantee, you know, a dollar. So I'm a huge fan of it. And to your point, basically most of the stablecoins so far have basically exported U.S. dollars on the internet, which if you're a policymaker would seem to make sense. The topic we've touched in the past that I find so fascinating is kind of your view of, so you've got law enforcement, you've got disclosure, you've got stability. But the big topic of this tension between the innovation and compliance, that if you're complying with every law, you may never try to build something new. And if you just build something without any compliance, you know, it's not going to work. But to your point, talk about kind of the fears of seeding this role in the United States, that if we don't take a holistic view of how to balance that, what could possibly happen? What we're talking about here, and I kind of alluded to this before, is that if you truly believe that what we're talking about is not primarily a financial innovation, but primarily a computer science innovation that has financial implications, because our financial system is built on computers, then what we're really talking about is the development of a new generation of the internet at A16Z. Chris Dixon and others have sort of coined the term Web3. Others, engineers, have used this term also in the past. But that's really what's at stake here. And I think that there are valid criticisms that the engineering isn't quite up to speed. There's a lot of more development that needs to be done. And so understand that we're in early days of this development, but that what's being developed is a new form for the internet, a new sort of structure and architecture for the internet. It might only affect the consumer aspects of the information. There are companies working on core infrastructure. Maybe it'll affect the core infrastructure too. We don't know, but it's a new version of the internet. The important thing about this is that when the original internet came into being, there were core values that were reflected in it of openness. We wanted it to be accessible to people. We didn't want a lot of gates on it. And it's developed in a way that's open source. We do allow encryption on it to protect legitimate privacy rights. And there was a big debate around that at the time. But I think on balance, policymakers realized there are benefits here. There are some downsides, but there are ways of mitigating the downside. And now that Web 2 has taken over with kind of social media and others, we've seen some other risks that have arisen that have to be dealt with. And, and as societies, it just takes us a while to do that, but we'll deal with those as well. But the important thing is that it all takes place within the construct of values that democratic societies hold dear. This is not just US-centric, it's other countries. You can go to India or you can go to Western Europe or other places that hold these values. And we want this system to be developed with those values in mind. There's a very different version of the blockchain that could arise. And you can see this in China's blockchain service network its initiative to expand a Chinese version of the blockchain internationally and globally, which is heavily surveilled, has very little privacy, and is really a mechanism of social control. What we really want is for this model that served us so well to be extended into this new domain of Web3, rather than ceding the ground to other countries that may come up with a very different model. And I think that the reason that's important is countries like China realize that they lost out on the first version of the internet, and they've been trying over the decades to claw that back. But this affords them an enormous opportunity as the guts of this new Web3 are being architected. And 
if we don't have as important a role in developing Web3 as we did in Web2, we're going to regret it. It was an enormous source of cultural power, soft power, as well as socioeconomic power. And we also benefit from national security and law enforcement perspective. The reality is that the government talks daily to companies like Google, Microsoft, you know, Facebook in solving national security and law enforcement problems because they're here. Similarly, we want the basic guts and it matters that the architects of the original internet were folks like Vince Cerf and others who shared our values. If this happens elsewhere, we can't guarantee that. And that shape of that future internet could be a very, very different place that is a handmaiden to authoritarianism. It's not a handmaiden to freedom. And that should worry policymakers a lot, it seems to me. And to get to the right place, it means you're going to have to do the same kind of balancing we saw with when we discussed OFAC and money laundering. There are privacy concerns. There are legitimate law enforcement concerns, legitimate national security concerns, legitimate disclosure concerns. But somebody's going to have to balance these things out to move us to a place where we develop and we have an important and dominant role in developing this new technology. And my fear is that and I think it's a fear of a lot of people that that's not happening right now, that a lot of the code commits, if you will, Electric Capital produced a report recently, which showed that if you look at code commits to new protocols, there's been a steady decline in code commits from geographies associated with the United States and other similarly minded countries to more global countries. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to authoritarian countries, but a dispersion of this internationally. And I think that's partially driven by this kind of whipsawing of where we are today in the regulatory atmosphere. And so that's, to me, it's what's at stake. It's not about finance. It's about a version of the internet that can do for us what the original version did. And I know there's a lot of criticism of it, but I don't think we should downplay the amazing things that have come out of the internet, in addition to the risks that have come from it as well. I can talk to relatives in India using WhatsApp when I was growing up, it was hundreds of dollars to make a phone call. There's real innovation that's happened in this space. And there's more that can come if it's architected right, or we can see a very different future. That's such a strong point. I think it's so important for the audience to hear. It pains me. I've never in my life until crypto as an American seen my country next to, if you log on to certain crypto apps, it says the United States, Iran, and North Korea cannot use this app. I've never seen our country in that sentence, comma, comma. And that just seems bizarre to me. Jay, I always love talking to you. And we usually end this podcast with this question about what you're excited about seeing built in the next six months and the next six years. But I want to change it for you because A16Z has also been taking a huge lead in policy. So if you could leave the audience with what are you doing at the policy front? Where's A16Z going to maybe push some of the ideas we've talked about today? Our approach has always been a measured and reasonable one. We want responsible regulation that preserves the core tenets of this technology, which is it's open source. At its architecture, at the protocol layer, it remains peer-to-peer, and that there's a way that it can essentially re-architect the inefficiencies of this kind of Rube Goldberg system that's been created for good reason. I mean, that's the way most things are created, whether it's in finance or elsewhere. And all of our policy proposals are meant to preserve those core principles while acknowledging that there are very important government interests that we wouldn't deny at all and trying to strike that balance right. And that's what we try to do 
whenever we talk to lawmakers or regulators or whoever we're talking to, or if we're just producing, you'll see that a lot of it isn't even direct engagement in that way. It's just stuff that's on our website. You know, you can go and you can read it. For us, I think the most important thing is transparency. If you want to know what we think, you don't have to guess at it. <laughs> it's out there. We try to publish a lot of things. My colleagues are prolific at publishing a ton of content in this space where you can know where we stand. And that's important because for us, I don't think we think that we have all the answers or that we're somehow infallible. So we put things out there so people can criticize it. And then we can improve upon it. This is a work in progress. This isn't a fait accompli. And I think for us, that's the most important thing, to have well-meaning, thoughtful dialogue that advances the ball. That's not based on preconceived notions. That's not based on things like recency bias and fearing the thing in the future because you're comfortable with the risks that exist today, as opposed to really embracing that. At our core, it's important for it to also recognize that the founding thesis of A16Z was in a sense, software was eating the world, right? That's kind of the article that was written. But more importantly, that we think that innovation is the secret sauce that the U.S. does really well. And we shouldn't cede that. Every country in the world would kill for the degree of innovation that we have here and seeks to emulate it all over the world. And some have been more successful than others. And that's what we want to drive. We want to make sure that any public policy decisions we make support innovation support that crown jewel of what the U.S. is really good at so that we can advance as a society and also the values that we care about become global values. And I think that's an important part of everything that's done here. And again, it's done in a sense of transparency and fairness. So if people have other ideas, they should bring them to the table too. It's really a culture of dialogue and openness. Jay, I always learn when we speak. Thank you so much for taking the time today. You're welcome. Thank you so much for the opportunity. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 